Hello and welcome to the Interest Center podcast, where we connect with experts and innovators in theological education around topics important to theological school leaders. Thank you for joining us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Governance Podcast. I'm Matt Huffman. In November 2023, I had the privilege of talking with several leaders at schools that received Pathways for Tomorrow grants from Lilly Endowment, Inc. During a gathering for grantees in Indianapolis, I invited several people to record a conversation for this podcast to discuss their projects because what they're learning affects the wider field of theological education. The collection of podcasts, which you can find at intrust.org podcast, cover a wide range of issues, subjects, and topics. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. And I'm joined in this podcast by uh, Professor Stacy Nome at the University of Notre Dame. <laughs> Stacy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Glad to have you. Now, Notre Dame is part of two different Pathways grants. We're going to talk about the Phase Two grant. You're the project director. It's about uh, developing intercultural competency in tomorrow's pastoral leaders, which, um, which is the title, of course, and in the reality. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing. Thank you. Um, I'm one of a group of three that are administering the grant. That's just the way that our school is shaped, where for our divinity program, there are three directors, and I'm in charge of human and spiritual formation, someone's in charge of pastoral, someone's in charge of intellectual. So the three of us have been administering the phase two portion of the grant, and our thrust is really focused on, again, those intercultural competencies for our students for the future of the church. Our students are both lay and seminarians in um, the Catholic Church. So the seminarians will be ordained priest. Uh, the lay folks, of course, will serve as laity, and some of them actually as religious brothers for the Congregation of Holy Cross. So what we wanted to make sure to do is acknowledge the, um, well, t- a couple things. One, the increasing demographic of our uh, Hispanic, Latino population of Catholics in the U.S., make sure that our students are capacitated to serve them well and um, competently as ministers in the future, but also all of the other kind of um, uh, minority populations that are a part of the church that we don't attend to enough in our, if you will, kind of stellar intellectual formation. Like how do we push out mm-hmm. of the brick and mortar pieces to really get folks into relationship and context where they're interfacing with those folks? You do spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about this project is that you're talking about intercultural competency as part of spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that idea. I mean, I really do, because I think if if you read the Bible and you see that the church is every tribe, every tongue, every culture, and we've seen that over 2,000 years through space and time. Mm-hmm. But talk to me a little bit about what that means, intercultural competency as, part, as a piece of spiritual formation. Right on. That's an excellent question. I love thinking about that. And so here's the initial product of my thinking, <laughs> which is... Um, God is bigger than we can conceive of, but also we believe in an incarnate God. And so every person on this earth represents a very particular um, face of God to us and also helps us have a very um, nuanced, specific lens into the gospel and into the word as it's um, incarnated in that place and time. And so uh, as far as how uh, intercultural competence uh, interfaces with spirituality, the first thing I'd point to is uh, 
part of our grant is both pilgrimage and immersion. Well, on the mm. pilgrimage side, that's explicitly spiritual formation happening uh, in an intercultural context. So our very first pilgrimage went to Mexico City, but especially to uh, experience Our Lady of Guadalupe uh, at the shrine, the basilica for to Our Lady. But we did a really good job. I think our um, Becky Rivalcava, my um, colleague, planned that entire trip and made a point of kind of bringing students along as far as like an actual immersion in the indigenous populations of Mexico so that we could even begin to understand um, with the appearance of Our Lady in Mexico, mm -hmm. what she was stepping into. So not only kind of like the European um, context that had um, colonized Mexico, but also the indigenous uh, faith of the people that was already present there. And so you can already hear like how different their conceptions of God and divinity could have looked. And then for all that to come together for us, you know, in this apparition of Our Lady to Juan Diego, uh, it just really blows open students' concepts of how to begin to um, understand so many things. One, uh, understanding ourselves as an entire church of North America, right? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Uh, understanding uh, the role of Our Lady in the Catholic Church, Mary plays a very, very important role, but also the motherliness that the people of Mexico comprehend so automatically that mm. many of us may not take um, fully to heart in the same way. I could just go on and on. So that's one example of how putting people in that space to experience it immersively automatically blew open the way that they pray uh, for that week, for sure, but also what they carry with them, um, their concepts of how to relate to God, like who is God for them when God can be so many things to so many different people from indigenous to conquistador, et cetera. You're also giving language skills, right? You're helping oh, absolutely. Through. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we do want to prepare people for what they're about to encounter. So we're not just throwing them into cultural immersive, culturally immersive spaces. So one large piece of our use of the grant monies is uh, invested in Baselang, which is a Spanish acquisition, kind of one-on-one -on -one Spanish language classes online uh, with native Spanish speakers. So any number of our students opt into that for varying levels of intensity as far as the number of lessons they take in a week or what have you. So certainly the language skills, but also whenever we're about to do an immersion or a pilgrimage, we have many preparatory classes, mm. uh, sessions, not only to kind of um, give them the room to build community with one another because they're you know, kind of the support system for each other when they're in that situation, but also to know what to expect, to frame their expectations. As we know, when folks have certain expectations that are unmet in some way, whether it's around, you know, um, food, shelter, clothing, sorts of basic needs, or just what they're going to encounter, there's a greater possibility that they don't receive the fullness of what is on offer. So we want to make sure that their expectations are as close to what the reality will be because the experience itself will be pushing them outside their comfort zone enough. Sure. So we want to make sure that they have that extra bandwidth to be pushed in the ways that the spirit is moving them, not simply because we didn't do our due diligence in preparing them. Sure. Now, Notre Dame's known for a lot of things. I mean, a very good school. This has got to have an interesting impact, I would think, on the school itself. As, as, as I say, I love the idea of intercultural um, study as part of of um, a, a spiritual formation. I know the seminary I went to, mm -hmm. that was a piece as well, but it, was, it wasn't 
certainly it's not as um, I would say specific as you're doing it as as is so that's one of the things I love about your project is it's very directed it's very clear about that um, tell me how this may be affecting the rest of, of the divinity school Great question. Let's see. So we are um, embedded in the theology department of the University of Notre Dame, which means that in our department is equally the undergraduate program. So we have the largest number of majors, if you can believe it, at our university. The largest number of majors are in the theology department and then um, in the College of Arts and Letters. And then uh, we have three uh, master's degree programs and a doctoral program, a PhD program in our department. So the ways that this uh, grant has impacted the entirety of that department, I guess, right? Um, good question. I think it's, well, golly, actually, I'll go with the way that it's impacted campus as a whole. So any number of our students, uh, the, the MDiv students often serve as assistant rectors in our halls. So for anyone who knows Notre Dame, we're a very residential campus. We have over 30 residential halls. Everyone lives on campus until their junior year, at least, and some into their senior year. So the huge preponderance of students is on campus. And then in those halls, the roles of rector and assistant rector are very pastoral. They're very ministerial. They're seen not as like building managers, but as actually shepherds of the of the people entrusted to them, the students entrusted to them. Well, so when you have folks having these immersive experiences, you can just imagine how now they've been capacitated in a totally different way to pay attention to their Hispanic and Latino students in the hall, but also how they're able to introduce or lead prayer in a different way at masses or at evening prayer adoration in a more culturally inclusive way, in a more culturally sensitive way, but inviting people into kind of the beautiful richness and wealth of our tradition kind of globally with more comfort because they've experienced it themselves, right? Like they've come to embody some portion of it. And actually, I should say in that embodying, I'm not saying for a second that they own it entirely. I think what our grants allowed us to do is help them understand what is um, the healthy kind of I can be a part of this and step into this too, and I know exactly where um, I come up against a limitation mm. because of my own ethnicity or culture, what have you. But I also know how to invite others then um, to lead more authentically, perhaps. So I think we have vast reach now in kind of tendrils, if you will, into uh, our undergraduate population's sure. lived experience daily. And we'll see if that continues to play out. I sure hope so. Well, you would have somebody who's got more cultural competency mm -hmm. than expressing that to their congregations, quote unquote, yep. congregations right. right. in the halls, mm -hmm. um, as well as their own spirituality. Because to see another culture certainly opens up your eyes the way the gospel may be seen, or in the Catholic tradition, the way the church is seen and expressed. Yep. And I would take that um, a step further. Something I've learned at this gathering, this November gathering, the number of times I've heard the words home or belonging, belonging being a very big word, we would very much want all of our students to feel like they belong in, on campus, but in their residences for sure. And I think that sense of welcome when you've been immersed in another's culture to know how to make space in the right way for them really kind of, um, yeah, uh, ignites that ability to feel belonging sure. at the earliest times, you know? So I've really appreciated that language here in particular. I'm learning so much from the other colleagues here and other schools here at this gathering. Tell me some lessons that you're learning or you've learned so far from the Pathways program. 
from the Pathways program or the interface here that we've gotten to have now? Either. So we've what, had, what, okay. I think what I think what part of it would be in your context at Notre Dame. Sure. What have you learned about Okay. So um, from so if all of our focus has been on student programming or and what I've learned here is that we're very um, blessed to have an infrastructure in place that didn't need particular assistance or tweaking or visioning. Mm-hmm. We have that in place, so we've been able to focus on student experience and programming. So since our programming is immersive and um, pilgrimage and so on, uh, We've learned a little bit about, again, how to prepare people for that appropriately so that they can receive what's on offer. We've also learned some things about kind of whens and wheres, right? So when is a student most uh, capacitated to receive what's on offer? They are not, for the record, most capacitated right after finals week. So that would be the (laughs) wrong time (laughs) to throw them into, for example, a class that also happens to be a pilgrimage. That's a lot to ask of very fatigued students at the end of an academic year. So we learned that. We definitely learned with our immersions. So immersions would be summer experiences of at least eight weeks where the students uh, go to an apostolate with which we have a relationship and serve for around, um, again, that eight-week time. But we always send them together. So sending people in pairs, which, of course, is you know gospel value, discipleship. Um, but we want to make sure that they have one another, not only to support one another there, but to have a conversation partner about mm-hmm. what's going on, someone who, if you will, speaks their language from what we've trained them in uh, in our program. So uh, we've learned that, definitely keep them sent together. We've also learned, we, we played with not only sending people domestically for immersions during the summer, but sending them internationally this last summer. And we learned that that's an overreach, mm. that we can't provide the same structures, that we don't know enough about the nature of, for example, lay ministry globally to be able to ensure that they're having a substantial, um, helpful experience. But domestically, we can kind of control some of those factors to make sure that they have a rich experience. Again, so there aren't too many outside elements impacting um, uh, the experience negatively. Uh, here I have learned an enormous amount, again, about how fortunate we are to be able to focus on our student programming instead of needing to attend to some of the infrastructure places. But I've also got some beautiful uh, insights about how people have invested in, for example, pedagogical frameworks and how to even think about pedagogical frameworks, which I will apply immediately. I've mm-hmm. already like, <laughs> made notes and sent myself emails for tomorrow, basically. Um, and then also around, uh, I'm super grateful for actually all of our Canadian um, friends here who are with us as far as their really important work with their um, kind of healing and reconciliation mm-hmm. piece in Canada. But the way they embody it so um, seamlessly, for example, I was in a session where someone referred to, um, you might need to help me, it's going to escape me right now, Maslow's uh, hierarchy, hierarchy of need. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so the woman sitting next to me happened to be from Alberta, Canada, and she just very seamlessly rose her hand, raised her hand and said, um, I just want to acknowledge that Maslow took that from the Blackfoot elders that he met in Alberta, Canada. And that's it. She just helped all of us acknowledge that this thing that so many of us rely on actually has indigenous roots. So that type of inclusivity, right, and cultural competence and sensitivity, but embodied in um, not in an interrupting way at all, but really just to like expand all of our knowledge and understanding and gratitude was it has been a beautiful example for me. 
Tell me about how you're evaluating this, because one of one of the things oh, at sure, Notre sure. Dame's program. Yep. Um, so back to your program is is you're sending these folks on immersion experiences. You're talking about intercultural competencies along with spiritual formation. Um, that's not something you fill out on a Scantron. That's right. It's not something that, you know, you pass or fail. And even I would think even in a paper or something could be very difficult to evaluate. You're exactly right. It is difficult to evaluate in a paper, (laughs) not because we haven't tried, Um, (laughs) but those are good insights. I will say this, having someone write immediately after their experience, what is freshest for them right now is the right type of storytelling right? That's not the evaluative piece for like what um, movements are going on in them. It doesn't, because it's not finished, right? Like that's mm-hmm. an initial taste, sure. but it is the right moment to capture the storytelling, which we've found helpful, of course, with grant reports and so on, but hopefully down the line, right? To be able to tell the story to other people about why it's so essential. Mm-hmm. So those, the written pieces are useful there. But um, our main focus for evaluation is around the intercultural development inventory. So the IDI, okay. I'm a qualified administrator for administrator for that. And so uh, every student, before they participate in any element of the phase two grant, uh, takes the IDI as kind of a benchmark, right? So like Mm -hmm. we've got a starting place for them. And then before they graduate, they'll take it again. And you've caught me at exactly the right moment. I will literally be giving the first round of folks who had taken it at the beginning of the grant, I will be administering the IDI to them in just two more weeks. And we are so excited to just see what happened for better or worse, you know, has there been movement with folks or not? Uh, But we're about to get those first results. So that's very, very exciting. exciting. Yeah. We'll see. This is pathways is a major project. I mean, you've heard that we've talked about that, the the amount of money going into theological education and the, the variety of programs um, one of the questions I haven't asked many people, but I think it's instructive is for you, because I always find with grants, you, you know, you go in and, and you get the money and you're excited and you start to do this. And then you realize, I wish I'd asked this question before, or I wish I'd known this before I got in. Are there things you're looking and say, you know what, we might do this a little differently now, or, or I wish I'd known about this, you know, so, which I guess goes to learning. What are you learning? Thank you. The, um, The number one lesson we have learned, and I do wish we had thought of it earlier, we couldn't have, we couldn't have foreseen it, is personnel, right? So as I said, three of us are administering this grant. There are new, for our phase two, there are no new hires. There are no additional um, assistance in the execution of the actual Mm. programming that we're offering. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, we do have one kind of like hourly wage person who's taking care of financial reimbursements and all the report writing. We couldn't do it without Katie. I'm so grateful for her. Shout out to Katie. <laughs> the, um, but really, it's, it's a grant of this magnitude. This amazing opportunity is actually work, of course, and mm-hmm. we have our regular jobs. And it, every one of us would say it feels like another at least half-time job right. to do all that we need to do um, to make this the highest uh, quality possible. It's funny, I just stepped out of a session that was talking about the project management iron triangle, right? And so at the tips of each of these triangles is, and probably many people know this, it was new to me, time and cost and quality. And that if you push into two of these things, the other will be sacrificed. Well, we're not willing to sacrifice quality for our students, not when it's about formation Mm -hmm. and not Mm -hmm. when spirituality and then other marginalized populations are a part of it, right? Like it has to be top most quality. 
uh, cost has been taken care of for us. Thanks Mm -hmm. be to God. Uh, But time is where we're paying Mm. (laughs) as far as personnel, right? So high, high, high time investment for something we feel very purposeful about. But if we had to look at a sustainability question, it might be less around the funding and much more around the time investment. Mm. Like where would that come from? How would we be able to do that? Well, that's a that's a great point because I think one thing that we often do when we write grants yeah. is is we we see this best world future and we want to put it into programmatic things because that's what we do, right? You're there for students, mm-hmm. you're there for student formation. We often, as a group in nonprofits and universities, don't look at the internal cost, mm-hmm. right? And right. and as you mentioned earlier in this. You talked about how you didn't have some of the structural issues mm-hmm. uh, the other schools have had, uh, but that's really a thing. It's in, and I think that's one of those things that can affect quality. Mm-hmm. I agree. The structural piece. I'm sorry. The structural well, piece or the personnel of, piece. Like in for you, the personnel piece becomes part of the structure. I totally agree with you. So as far as the way it affects quality, you're always going to have the question before you. I have a five-year grant, and this programming is very important and exciting and fun to throw your time mm-hmm. into. Also, I need to continue to teach my two to course load and a mm-hmm. few other items as well. So a question is, if the grant programming quality hasn't suffered, it's a legitimate question to hold a mirror up to myself and say, has my classroom work suffered? Has my instruction suffered? Mm. Has my presence to my students in other ways suffered? Um, so yes, it's an ongoing kind of growth curve for us. Not that we would sacrifice one for the other, but uh, that constant integration of what does this look like if it's going to continue? Like, what is the trade-off? Sure. Any advice you would give as we wrap up to other schools or to particularly senior leaders of of theological schools, whether that's a dean, a board, a president? What a great opportunity. (laughs) What advice to give. I think my understanding of what the primary role of executive and senior leadership should be is to help the people below you along to the next step, right? So if I would say to an executive um, director or senior leader or administrator at a university or college, um, it's probably that leader's role to ask the hard questions of the folks under them as far as their time investment. So the excitement that all of us are going to bring to the table around getting the opportunity to do these things is one thing, but also the human investment of their people, what they're going to have to put on the table to ask the hard question of like, do you have the bandwidth for this? How can we Mm -hmm. make this possible for you without burning you out? We need to sustain you over the long term, right? So being the good steward as the senior administrator, being the good steward of your human um, personnel resources is probably a question they would have to ask in case their folks aren't asking it of themselves because all of us would be willing to pour ourselves out for our students entirely, right? But that's not a sustainable model. It's not a flourishing model, and God wants us all to flourish. That's a great point, and a great point to end on. Okay. Stacy, I am uh, pleased to have you on the program. My guest today is Stacey Nome of the University of Notre Dame. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you again for having me. It's really fun to talk about. Thank you for listening to the Intrust Center's Good Governance Podcast. For more information about this podcast, other episodes, and additional resources, visit intrust.org.